Welcome, everyone, to the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Mariah, and this is an episode for all you city builders, city shapers, city dwellers out there that care about driving change towards people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development and Edmonton Association, a nonprofit education and advocacy group bringing together like-minded people working to shape our cities. Well, let's get into some of the definitions that are going to be key for this episode. So something that IDEA has faced a lot over the past few years is this, it's not like a stigma, but it's people think infill and they think low density infill and skinny houses and garden suites sometimes. Uh, But that's not all infill is. And that's part of the reason that we're doing this podcast is to help broaden that uh, view and understanding. And that's why I wanted to have Chris on with you today. Um, commercial infill is a huge part of communities. It helps to build out neighborhoods, helps to bring people back into the communities at all different types of day, whether it's a restaurant or it's a medical center or a daycare. Uh, it helps to build those 15-minute communities that we're all looking for, laid out in our city plan and, and honestly a lot of plans in different municipalities around North America uh, and in Europe. Yeah, it just about broke my neck nodding along there um, so vigorously. But yeah, infill is definitely evolving past, I think we talked about it on Kim's episode where we've evolved past these the notion that infill is just skinny houses and, and how far we've come from like even the conversation about lot splits. So yeah, commercial infill is kind of the next step as neighborhoods densify, all of a sudden they need more services and they need them closer to them. So commercial infill is a really important part. And Chris and his company are uh, definitely providing that. So another definition um, is adaptive reuse, which we talk about a lot. That's what Chris's uh, company, Belgian, focuses on quite a bit here. And basically, it's just the process of repurposing buildings for new uses and modern functions. So it's like a renovation. And they do it in commercial spheres, which is kind of interesting. And, and this reuse, it, it, it helps on a number of factors. So it preserves some of that heritage that we talk about as being really important. Um, it, it keeps an asset in the community viable longer than it would normally be. And my personal favorite keeps a lot of stuff out of the landfill. So um, that's what adaptive reuse is. Um, we also talked about city plan, district planning, zoning bylaws. So rather than define that for you, go back and listen to episode one. We define it all there and I'm just too lazy to do it all over again because we have a couple more definitions. The next one is form-based code and use-based zoning. So this is just a dorky planning thing, but form-based code is kind of a new-ish way of looking at our zoning bylaw that regulates it primarily on how buildings and public spaces look rather than how the buildings are used. So in our current zoning bylaw, I think it's called Euclidean zoning. Yeah. I'm showing my dorkiness, but um, we regulate a lot based on the use of the building. So uh, if it, for example, if you have this type of business, it has to be like this. These are the setbacks. This is the height. It has to be this far away from other uses and that kind of thing. So that's how we currently regulate land use in our city. And uh, with the Zoning by Renewal Project, um, there was some discussion about going to a form-based code, um, which basically says buildings have to look like this and interact with the street like this and whatever goes inside them The last one is uh, direct control zoning, DC zoning, which we talk about a lot. 
and planning, but it, it means basically a specific zone for a given site where a set of zoning rules are written just for that site. So they don't have to follow existing zoning bylaw requirements. So things like uses, setbacks, height, density, pretty much anything goes as long as you can justify it. Um, it's different than a standard zone because a lot of times it's for a specific development and council and the neighbors and the public and everybody gets to weigh in on that directly. So right now when we rezone land, we rezone it typically with just an idea of what could be there. So residential, commercial, industrial, and then arguing over the intensities and possibilities. But for a direct control zone, council gets to see, well, everyone gets to see exactly what will get built on a site and then weigh the pros and cons of that specific development. So it's a great tool for providing that certainty to everybody about what will be built on a given site when making land use decisions. Yeah, well, and I think DCs have their place and and standard zones have their place. And Edmonton, I think, has kind of gotten into the rut of wanting everything to be DCs. Last time I checked, we have over a thousand DCs in Edmonton, um, which is a lot of certainty. But like you and I have talked about before, some of the some of the benefits of a DC, but also some of the drawbacks. Uh, So what are some of your thoughts around drawbacks for DCs? Yeah, with like, um, I don't want to get canceled, so I don't want to go too deep into this. But yeah, I, I agree with you that they do have a, a specific time and a place and a use. They are, The downside is that these are very complex, costly in terms of financial and time as well. And um, they provide very limited flexibility. So the time it takes to put a direct control application together and get it through Um, could take uh, like a year, maybe longer than that. Market conditions can change in that year. All of a sudden you have to go and make changes and you can't because you're stuck to that initial design. You have to go back through council to make any kinds of changes. So if you know exactly what you're doing and you're willing to kind of accelerate that timeline and build right away, it makes a ton of sense. And I love that it provides an exact look at what's going to be built and then council and the neighbors instead of arguing over what ifs they argue about the merits of the exact development, but it is, it is very costly and very time consuming and very inflexible. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So, uh, when I would explain it to someone like my mom, who's not in the development world, I would talk to her about like, if I was to go shopping and buy an outfit, it'd kind of be like a, a standard zone. I know what the outfit is going to look like. I'm going to, you know, you buy it right there. It's the fit's not going to be as great. But if I was to go to a tailor and be like, hey, I want this dress, I want an A-line, I want to be able to like swoosh when I, tw- when I twirl and all these fun things, it's like very specific and it'll fit me perfectly. So a DC can help fit a neighborhood more perfectly, but not everything can be tailored in your, in your wardrobe, right? Not everything can be a DC too in our neighborhoods. It's very expensive. It takes forever. And like those important sites, that's where tailored clothes should be. And for other areas, you know, standard housing, standard commercial, that fits our neighborhood too. We need all types of development. So that's how I would describe direct controls. I love that analogy. Also, your mom listens to this podcast. I know she does. So (laughs) um, she's going to be an expert in development pretty quickly. But that's a great little analogy. My wife actually just got me on tailoring my clothes about a year ago. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. But as long as my body fits that exact measurement as the day that I went there. 
And in COVID, it fluctuated a little bit. So there's some pants that are waiting for a different Ryan to come around and uh, get back into them. So yeah, a little bit inflexible. Well, that's the problem with DCs too, right? Like you go into the tailor and you're like, this is exactly what I want. And then a pandemic hits and you eat a bunch of Oreos and what you wanted no longer fits. Or, you know, you get back into spin class and you got like a different body and you're getting back into shape and now the dc no longer fits so it has its time and place it's not for everything it's for some things but we also need to be able to use our standard zones yeah well let's talk to somebody who's building our city now So today's guest is Chris DeLaba, who's a placemaker with Belgian Development. He has over 15 years of experience as a planner and developer, Western Canada, Ontario. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. Chris, you probably get this a lot, but what the heck is a placemaker? Well, I, I think that it, it really actually has two meanings. Um, I guess first, uh, it's, it's a very well-known term amongst those in the planning industry, uh, that has uh, really been widely used over the last several years here to, uh, I think, uh, identify how cities and, and buildings are supposed to and intended to create interesting spaces and places, uh, places for people, uh, places that are permanent, that have a certain identity to them, uh, to identify maybe a certain city or a certain district or a certain type of particular use. And I think it was a, it really was a term that uh, has kind of come to fruition as a response really to, I think uh, the way we have been building our cities over the last 50, 60, 70 years was almost commoditized. You know, we, we, we really developed a lot of our built form primarily in North America uh, around the automobile. Shopping malls look the same in Des Moines, Iowa, as they do in Dallas and Denver and Edmonton. Uh, strip malls are strip malls, no matter which way you spin it, uh, from Mexico to, to, to Canada. And those are just generic places and spaces. And, and a lot of people don't necessarily uh, identify their, their city or, or, or place based on those types of uh, built forms. And so I think we've really tried to, obviously, building our cities better and building our cities for people. And I think a big part of that is placemaking. So that's part of it. Um, obviously, the name placemaker is a title uh, that I hold within the company. And one of the things we did early on when we started, the, you know, in, in uh, you know, 2010, 2011, was we didn't want a generic, you know, vice president development, uh, president development manager. We thought maybe someone can coin their own term uh, that aligns a little bit with what their role is. And obviously, in my case here, placemaker. Uh, is a reflection of my responsibilities within the organization was primarily tied to the planning, land use, uh, coming up with the concept and and how we take a space or a a lot or a building and reposition it to create a special place on the block or in the city. And uh, so Placemaker was the the name I gave myself and and I think it still holds true today and and really is a a strong reflection of the ethos of, of our company, which aspires to do interesting things to help improve the city. Uh, that's basically it. You know, we, we try to do, uh, you know, we try to put a lot of emphasis on design and, and, and repositioning spaces and places and buildings to enhance that space and place compared to what it was. Uh, Chris, you and I have talked about what commercial infill is and what it means to communities. But for our listeners out there, and I get this question a lot, 
can you tell them what commercial infill is and why Edmonton needs it and other mid-sized North American cities? Well, I think, uh, you know, commercial infill is, uh, it, it's, it's vital. I mean, a lot of emphasis, obviously, and a lot of infill and redevelopment in many of our cities has been on bringing people back into the existing communities, you know, densification through, uh, through housing, you know, multiple forms of housing from singles all the way to high rises. Um, but we often forget that, you know, uh, there's another side to infill, which is the commercial side, the one that provides the, the shops and the services and the places where people can meet, work and congregate. And uh, I think in Edmonton's case here, obviously, you know, we've seen infill really take off over the last number of years. Um, and I think that trend is going to continue well into the future. And you've seen some, I guess, attention to commercial and infill and, and revitalizing a lot of our main streets uh, but not a lot. And I think we're the next chapter of really the infill story is about, okay, we, we've seemed to have a bit of, uh, uh, you know, we know what we're doing with infill housing. Uh, we, we're, we're on the right trajectory. The market obviously is responding to that. The demographics are responding to that. Now, how do we make our main streets better? And not even just main streets, but how do we actually start to look at putting in commercial services in some of these great neighborhoods that maybe didn't have commercial services. Because if we all want to build these 15 minute cities and districts that happens with multiple types of land uses. And it's not just high density or medium uh, density residential, it's mixed use. Uh, and it's, and, and it's mixed use with a, with a commercial component um, and employment component. And so, yeah, commercial infill is all of that. And uh, you know, we're, we're excited to, I think, um, leverage what's happened in a lot of these great communities with infill and intensification by providing great commercial infill, uh, adaptive reuse of, of existing commercial buildings that were really built to be insular and didn't speak much to the sidewalk or to the street, uh, really closed their almost, you know, the way of their interaction to the adjacent uh, public realm was a doorway. Uh, other than that, maybe a few windows, but there was no real active engagement of the building facade to the public sidewalk, creating these places for outdoor cafes and, and, and the whatnot that really, I think, help solidify a lot of these great neighborhoods and, and places uh, that I referenced to earlier. And so, yeah, commercial infill is that. And I think we're really going to enter into this next segment of commercial infill as we develop uh, the city plans now develop, but now we get into the real nitty gritty district plans, the zoning bylaw renewal, all of that, I think, uh, at least I hope, uh, will have a greater emphasis on creating a bit more of these commercial nodes and corridors in our existing neighborhoods in the city. I think one of the things that Belgium does really well, like you and Ivan, your team, uh, is adaptive reuse. I feel like the community doesn't maybe not understand what that word means yet or hasn't made that connection. But dang, do you guys do it well? <laughs> we hear about your projects all over the place. Um, what are some of the challenges? Like this, that's part of the reason we have this podcast is to talk about challenges and opportunities uh, to learn from each other and kind of foster that conversation. So what's some of the challenges that you guys have overcome to help create these beautiful spaces that I've poured tons of money into? <laughs> well, I, it's the unknown. It is much easier to tear down an existing building and rebuild it new uh, because you erase a lot of that unknown. And, uh, but for us, you know, we've, first off, we placed and do place a huge amount of value on a lot of our heritage assets we have in this city. Our real core focus and attention, if you look at our, our, our the projects we work on, really emphasize um, the adaptive reuse of a lot of these heritage buildings because you can't replicate them. 
and we've lost a lot of them. And and I'm not going to go, oh, the city of Edmonton is quick to demolish. You know what? The city of Edmonton at the time, you know, particularly when we were, you know, a, a boom bust city, and this goes for, for, for Calgary, and, and it really goes for a lot of North American cities for that fact, is we really started to have that post-suburban boom in development uh, from the 1950s on. Uh, at the time, those buildings were old. Uh, we need to make way for the new. And it didn't have anything to do with, oh, Edmonton is quickly to get rid of it. It really was just a, a product of the time that it was easier and, and progressive planning and city building meant building brand new buildings, the mollification of our downtowns, super, you know, super block type of developments with office towers, you know, getting rid of a lot of the smaller fine grain um storefronts and building typology to make way for these massive podiums with in insular uh you know uh, uh functions uh you know shopping everyone did it inside you know the indoor atriums you don't have to worry about going outside that was where it's cold rainy or too hot uh headways connected you or underground tunnels you go to the parkade you go to your office building you leave you don't really need to explore the streets and i think over time we've obviously and, and this goes back to my comment on placemaking uh, we've realized through that progressive planning and city building, we've lost a lot of that identity and what we were and how important that identity is to where we are going as a city and us to place the value on the, on these little artifacts, these little urban artifacts of our past and trying to reposition them and give them a new lease on life was a real core focus of what we do. And, and it continues to be, and it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be building built. It was a hundred years old. Even some of the architecture and, and buildings built in the sixties and early seventies actually have some interesting design characteristics that we, I hope that as we move forward and start to replace those buildings aren't lost. Uh, because I, I think if you want to talk about sustainable city building, there's nothing more sustainable than being able to use existing buildings and structure to give them a new purpose because the amount of energy and resources that go into demolishing a building, creating the steel or concrete, transporting it, building it is huge. So it's kind of two purposes. A, it's preserving a lot of these relics of the past uh, that are important to, I think, be a reflection of where we want to go as a city in the future. It's also a bit more sustainable in terms of why would you tear down a building when the structure is good, when it can still be around for another hundred years. Uh, and all it takes is a little bit of creativity uh, and risk to take these spaces and buildings, preserve some of the, the key elements, the key, some of the, the character defining elements, may that be the architecture uh, or what the building was in terms of its use and just unlocking value through you know, modernization and, uh, and, and giving it a, a new, a new type of space, because a lot of that is it's irreplaceable. The story behind the building in itself is irreplaceable. Sure. You could tear it down and create your own new story, your own new marketing and no, your new brand. But to us, I mean, you look at a building that was built in, you know, the 1910s or twenties, and you learn about what it was. Oliver exchange is a good example, right? built in 1913 was a telephone exchange building. And it was a privately built building to connect Edmontonians with this new telephone system that was, uh, you know, started to be developed in many of our cities throughout North America. And so, and it continued on to be that up until we purchased it in 2017 and said, you know, maybe there's a way we can continue that story of connecting people. Uh, but we're going to connect people through 
shops and services and repurposing this building uh, in a different manner. You can't create that. You can create that story using a marketing agency and, and some logos and branding if it was a brand new building. But to me, that's free, easy story right there. You've just taken what already was done and how this building operated for the last hundred years and just said, all right, well, it's now a mer mercantile exchange instead of a telephone exchange. And the, the whole story of the building and the aesthetics, people are gravitated towards that. And tenants are gravitated, they gravitate towards the story um, versus a very new polished space, which the story has never been told. It's kind of, you know, a uh, run of the mill type space. You can get that 15 foot clearance in the north side, the south side, the east side, the west side, any new area that's built brand new commercial space kind of all looks the same. And uh, for us, it's about being able to unlock some of the history and the story and repackage that into uh, the purpose that it has today in the neighborhood that it, that it is. Because some of these buildings, too, were in a neighborhood that once had a totally different purpose than what they are today. I'm, I'm really happy you mentioned that that it's not just the buildings that are um, more than 100 years old or whatever. I, I don't know if you follow Citizen Dane on Instagram, but he yes. does a great job of kind of cataloging and talking about the history of buildings. And, and there's one that kind of comes to mind. I think it's on 108th Street. It's the the El Mirador <laughs> apartment buildings. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, were built in like the 50s and are a very distinct architectural style that you don't see anywhere. But he kind of argues that it still has uh, kind of that significance, even though it's not uh, like designated heritage or historical. Very true. You know, sometimes, again, a lot of people think heritage, they think, oh, uh, you know, 100 year old brick buildings. And when that's not necessarily the case, there's a there's a whole there's a number of buildings throughout the city here um, that are, you know, built in the 50s, 60s, even 70s, even some brutalist style of architecture. I don't think we should be quick to want to dispose of that because there's something I find that is a bit, I don't know, it's, it, 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 again, it's, it's a defining a certain era and time period in our cities. Yes, some of the design, it might be very cold and hostile, but I think there's ways that you can improve that to... Uh, connect better with its surroundings without just simply abolishing it saying well gone you know and we'll build a brand new glass box and something that's you know activated in the ground floor and i i think we should and i hope that as we move forward here we we learn to respect a little bit more of that modernist architecture that uh, usually wasn't designed for people or or you know for the you know human scale anyways and i think there's ways that we can improve some of those buildings without having to just totally disregard them as we move forward here and, and uh, you know, uh, develop our cities and redevelop our, 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 our core neighborhoods. I'm glad you feel that way. I, uh, I actually love 70s and brutalist architecture. And I think Edmonton had such a boom around that time. So Absolutely. I'm hoping we don't lose it all. And then don't bastardize it is what I say. <laughs> yeah. um, so anyone who's tried to develop or who has developed in film knows how challenging it is to get uh, financing for projects because Traditional yes, lenders yes. and banks, they they weren't comfortable with it. They hadn't seen it succeed. But now, like, you have a lot of projects on the roster that have succeeded and have done well. How'd you get people to believe in you? Well, that's a lot of hard work. You know, we all know lenders are risk averse. And, uh, you know, they do their homework, you know. And, and when you try to go against the grain, that raises questions. And they want to say, you know, I'll give a great example, Crawford Block. When we looked at redeveloping that site, you know, a lot of red flags were thrown up when we were proposing to build 40 micro suites 
you know, first off, microsuites in, in the Edmonton market is a bit of a risk, let alone microsuites with no parking. And so a lot of lenders obviously were very uh, taken back. They're saying, okay, well, microsuites, you can, you know, it works in bigger centers like Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, and maybe Calgary. But I mean, you know, Edmonton is, is uh, you know, people like their... They like their, their single detached lifestyle. They like their parking. And so how can we be sure that, you know, building these micro suites in Edmonton with no parking is actually going to make it. And so it took a lot of work to convince lenders to buy into the idea. And ultimately we were able to overcome that hurdle. And, uh, you know, and, and the fact that I think we really leveraged saying, well, we're in the most, one of the most walkable districts in the city. Uh, people get around this neighborhood, not by driving, but by walking, biking, uh, transit, we believe that there really isn't a necessity to have parking. Ultimately, at the end of the day, um, we were able to convince the lender to, to, to finance it and we built it and, and, and there it is. And, and now what you're starting to see uh, since that time, I mean, the interesting thing about that, I we thought that it would have been a much, it was around the same time where the city was actually taking a big step on saying, okay, any new redevelopments within this corridor of, of, of White Avenue doesn't need to provide parking. And so that was a big step back in those days. And so it kind of, it, we ran in parallel with that. And, it, and we thought, okay, you know, one of the big challenges now would be we're building a five-story building at a predominantly two, three-story height in the provincial historic core, which you know people freak out about all the time. And in fact, it, that really wasn't an issue. No one really cared about the fact that we were doing five stories and going over that 14 meter max up to 16 meters or whatever it was, it was the fact that, hey, you guys are saving this Crawford Block building. You're designating this building a municipal historic resource. So we know it's going to be legally uh, protected. Um, and that was really the exchange. You know, planning said, we're okay with kind of going through that height threshold if you designate the building. And we thought, well, okay, well, let's look at what designating means. What is What are the risks and encumbrances that we take on by virtue of of you know handcuffing ourselves to 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 the building and, and and keeping it and we thought well the idea was never to tear it down in the first place it was in great condition so it's going to stay and it's likely going to stay for the next you know 20 30 40 plus years if we're able to unlock the value on the very underutilized portion of the site for the microsuite apartment building it's a win win and, and and the fact that if we designate it the city will also contribute a certain number of funds to help enhance and, and uh, the architecture and, and the, the building in, in various ways. Why not? Why wouldn't you do that? I mean, you were going to save it anyways, or it's going to be part of our overall program. We may as well designate it, be able to access some of those funds to uh, make improvements to that building exterior wise, uh, even some structural sort of uh, enhancement improvements to roofs and whatever else it may need to be. For us, it was a win-win. And so, yeah, it started with kind of the rule of the Crawford block and then it morphed into Hulbert block and that one was designated. I mean, uh, you know, building after building, the majority of the heritage buildings we buy, we designate because again, we believe that preserving these buildings retains the value of, of what we're doing. Uh, but then we also have the value add proposition by adding on to it or building on to it. Again, it, it, we're able to unlock the story of what some of these old buildings were to the new uh, use that uh, we're proposing. It may be the same type of use, residential or residential or commercial, but you're unlocking the the kind of the history of the building and wrapping that as part of your brand and your marketing and, and tenants like that. 
you know, a lot of people are gravitated towards it and they see value and we're able to unlock value, you know, from uh, the lease rates we're able to generate from these buildings. You know, sometimes, as well, you know, our White Avenue rates are average 30, you know, $40 a foot. Uh, how come you think you can get higher than that? And it's a matter of taking the time to say, well, first off, we're not like a very typical 60 foot deep by 20 foot wide storefront in a, in a kind of generic 1960s or 70s building that was built on white. This is a heritage building. You know, we're exposing a lot of sort of the interesting uh, features of the building. May it be the brick walls or, you know, wood, uh, you know, sort of a heavy timber structure, things like that, that a lot of tenants will find value because they can wrap their own use into that and the story. I mean, look at block 1912. You know, you go in there and, it, and a lot of the heritage feature, like it, it's part of their, what they are as a use and a, and a brand. You know, it goes on and on. I mean, Oliver Exchange, a, a whole bunch of these build you know, uses, really a lot of left, left the walls and, and everything to speak to it for itself because there's history to it. And uh, you know, you can't find those spaces and, in, in new builds. It, uh, it, it definitely is something unique and we're able to find a way to unlock the value of that. Yeah, well, and it shows. Um, I think a lot of the tenants that uh, you attract to your buildings, they're really quality tenants. There's a lot of institutional Edmonton tenants that you have in your buildings. One that started in Calgary that came to Edmonton, I'm sure sought you, you guys out. <laughs> uh, that has lineups every time I go. Um, and every one of them, they, they play up the fact that they're in those kind of buildings that, that are community buildings and they're there for the community. Absolutely. And then they draw in other, other small tenants too, that grow and kind of flourish together as, as commercial does. You know, you're right. You know, I mean, a tenant, a tenant, like, you know, I know it's made by Marcus you're referring to. I mean, he could have went anywhere on white and been successful. Heck, he could have been off white and been successful, successful, but you know, it happened to be he was walking down White Avenue, you know, looking at sites, uh, you know, for expansion and came across Tipton Block and just saw this little alleyway thing we did. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, at that point he knew I, I need to be back there. Uh, there's something really cool and interesting about this space and the building. And obviously, you know, when, when he met with Ivan and chatted and we were able to really kind of tell the, the whole story about what happened there. I think that was just a natural fit and it just, you know, I need to be there. I need to be part of that. And certainly a, an anchor tenant in that development. And, and I think again, when you are able to draw the crowds that he draws, that raises the boat for other tenants along that block. I mean, you go get an ice cream, then all of a sudden, you know what, maybe let's go and grab a quick drink at uh, Malton Mortar or whatever it is afterwards. I mean, uh, and for us, it's, that's what we want. I mean, the more we're able to sort of, you know, we're big believers. The rising tide raises all boats. It's not a matter of, well, how quickly can we get to the top and be the best? If there were, you know, 10 or 20 more developers that do it, we're doing in the city, that'd be, that, that's what we want because we can't do it alone. And in each project takes a lot of time, energy and effort. And um, there's only so much you can take on. And so I'd love to see more entrepreneurial minded developers and risk takers that love the city and will want to do the Umphrey blocks and all that sort of thing. Uh, because more. I mean, the Richie Mark, I mean, you name it. If we can get more of those folks taking the tape, same type of risks, this city will be a much cooler and better place. And I think we're heading towards that direction. I, you, you can start, you can see it. 10 years ago, there was no Richie Market. <laughs> I'm free law. I mean, all of that was really, no one was really thinking of that. It was kind of just build 
and infill is kind of a brand new building and kind of generic. And so you're seeing this. And I think it's a reflection of Edmonton growing up, our entrepreneurial spirit, uh, you know, maturing. I think our food and beverage uh, operators maturing and, and, and realizing Edmonton was a very underserved market for a long time. We were predispositioned to wanting to go to chains versus cool, interesting eateries, places like that, whereas Calgary was much further ahead than we were. Uh, but yet our demographics are very much the same. So what was our excuse? I don't think there was. It was just a matter of, well, Edmonton, I think we quickly discounted ourselves back in those days. Said, oh, well, Boston Pizza, you know, Tim Hortons drive through that's enough. Maybe we have Hardware Grill and let's not get crazy now, you know, and maybe we'll do, you know, the Sugar Bowl or something like that. That's as, as kind of, you know, hardcore as we get. But I, 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 it was a lot more room for more. And we've seen that, you know, with a, a wonderful array of, of uh, food and beverage, uh, you know, establishments that have opened up in the city over the last really five years. I, the one other thing that I'm really glad that your team has started exploring is event spaces. I know in the Oliver Exchange building, there's a really beautiful event space that I have a, a few friends that have, they're looking to get married there. <laughs> they, they were looking last year, but they're booked. Yeah. <laughs> The, the world is kind of closed for a bit, but yeah, it's Edmonton needs spaces like that. And so I was so excited when I saw uh, you build out a space like that. So you look around Edmonton, you're like, that site's great. This site, it has potential. This site, maybe not yet. How do you make those decisions? Obviously, you know, I think we've, our, our track record and what we've done, uh, a lot of sites now come our way. Usually if there's a, an older building, that is a bit of a dog or needs some love, brokers come to us first. They'll say, hey, I know somebody who might want to be interested in it. So we like those opportunities where, where, the, where, where the brokerage community is coming to us saying, hey, I haven't gone public with this yet, but I think this fits your wheelhouse. And, um, you know, I, I, I will say, I think, you know, we, we've had a lot of successes with our previous projects, you know, Crawford, even the repositioning of the Lindwood Shopping Center, 149th Street, those were great projects, but I think the real project that seemed to elevate our brand and our awareness was Oliver Exchange. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I just think that it was uh, maybe just the, the impacts it had on that immediate community was, was really immediate and, and people saw what you could do with really being on a site that's off, really off your major frontages. I mean, it's not on Jasper Avenue or 104th Avenue. It's on 121 Street, 102 Avenue. Like, I mean, kind of this weird little junction uh, between your main streets, uh, yet has been by far one of the most popular, I think, destinations for that part of Oliver, which was missing that little place. You know, you had one of the densest communities in, in Alberta uh, without really a true soul and core. It had great places along, you know, Jasper Avenues or 109 or 104th-ish. Uh, and 124th Street, to an extent, was an extension of that. But it just really was kind of this this dense place with a great you know demographic profile that never had a place for people to kind of go have uh, you know just it didn't have a collection of those uses that that Oliver Exchange has that that was the one that certainly I think has sent our our brand uh, has elevated us we're trying to to leverage um, uh, obviously with substation 600 and that re redevelopment on 124th Street that's the idea there. And I do think that's going to come to fruition with, you know, our Irrationals now operating. Grizzlar is set to open here in a couple of months. Uh, Powerage, you know, there's a number of these uses that are now 
I think once that building is really fully operational, it will give you another Oliver Exchange type of feel for 124th Street. And we'd love to do that elsewhere. Uh, and we and we will. Uh, but uh, yeah, a lot of these things come to us through, sometimes it's even owners, right? Owners will say, you know, I've watched you guys or I've seen your stuff on TV. And some of these owners have sentimental value to these buildings that it might be through a generational uh, estate that, you know, hey, my grandpa built this. We've operated it. I've kind of leased it really out for the last 20 years. My kids don't want to have anything to do with this real estate. They're, they don't live in Edmonton anymore or they have they have no aspiration to want to be landlords. And so, hey, would you guys be interested? And sometimes, you know, uh, we find opportunities that way and sometimes through the brokerage community. And uh, so, yeah, I guess with our, with, you know, the guys that typically take on some of these uh, projects with a lot of hair on them, we're usually first uh, kind of on the list and on the Rolodex to, to give a call and say, hey, want to take a look at this. And, um, and so a lot, sometimes, you, you know, they, they check a few boxes and they don't, pass but uh you know a lot of of our decision to to go on a project starts with kind of a gut feel there's no intense market studies or anything it's really a you know you you, you go check it out you figure out okay what's happening around the site what's happening in the building what's the story of this building and uh what is this this building and or block or district kind of missing and how can we take that and reposition it to accommodate that that new type of use that we think the, the neighborhood or the area would need. And, and, um, and what's it going to take to get there? Um, if it, you know, as Ivan, he uses the term a lot, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And honestly, a lot of this, the decision really comes from collaborating with our peers, you know, having conversations with our, our designers, uh, brokers, contractors, and just getting everyone's intel, right? All this little sort of uh, intel and say, okay, you know, this is the goulash of information we have right now. Where do we think we should go here? And sometimes, you know, you look at it once, you're like, Ugh, no, I don't, I'm not sure. But sometimes then you start thinking about it. You think, you know, maybe there is a play here. I don't know. Well, why don't we, why don't we see? Let's, let's go from there. And so that's, uh, that's usually kind of how it all kind of comes together. There's no real, there's a, there's an approach but there's no secret sauce, so to speak. It's really, you know, we work with uh, some wonderful people in our in our in our office here, and when we all get around the boardroom table and we start talking about a site or a building, that's where it happens. And it's really, it's not the brainchild of, you know, I, I sketch something and, and oh, that's it, or the architect or Ivan. It's it's a it's a combination of everyone's intel and input that I think ultimately decides on whether we we move forward with something or not. Yeah, well, the the community feel, the teamwork that you have within Belgian, I think, goes throughout your projects. It brings community inside and outside uh, through your tenants and through the people who uh, come visit all those tenants and make it successful. Yeah, for sure. So it, it I'm I'm happy that uh, you know you guys are the first ones doing a lot of this stuff. Um, I used to live next or close to the at eighty one redevelopment, um, yeah. where you, t- you you basically took a, a main floor retail building, redeveloped it, and put apartments on top. Um, we were very keen on seeing that happen, uh, but there's lots of those little ones that, that you're kind of taking on. So, um, it seems like, you know, you and I have worked in the development industry for long enough to know that most typical developers are a little risk averse. Um, they try to point to others, like show me uh, an example of this working, um, elsewhere. So it seems like other developers now are 
starting to not catch up to you, but catch up to where you were. So the, uh, the micro suite concept, which you talked about with Crawford Block, lots of new micro suites coming up um, in, in certain areas in Edmonton, but a lot of developers know that it can work now because of you guys. And then similarly, zoning caught up as well. Like you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, you were the first one to do no parking. Um, even though it was on White Avenue. And then from there, the zoning bylaw changed in 2020 to completely eliminate parking requirements. I'm sure they didn't uh, source you guys or give you any credit for that, but um, at least showing that it could work helped kind of in those decisions. Um, where I'm going with this is that the zoning bylaw is undergoing a huge renewal right now. So I want to hear your thoughts on where you think it's going and where you think it should go um, to support kind of commercial infill and infill in general. Well, I think it's long overdue. I think we all know that, um, you know, these, these types of, uh, documents are, they're not easy to renew and change. Uh, and, and over time, you know, layers get added to them and, uh, you know, they get reviewed kind of, uh, you know, here and there, but this, this overhaul, it, it was, it, it was, it was necessary. I mean, if the city truly wants to have the mechanism and the tool to implement a lot of these larger motherhood policy statements and directives that are entrenched now in our, our new city plan will be further, I think, solidified through uh, the district planning that uh, that, is, that is starting up. Uh, the zoning bala has to reflect those. And, and if you've got a, a, a gap between the two, um, what it does, it, it forces uh, the industry, you know, the applicants to, well, you find a way to, to bridge the gap, go with direct control or, uh, and then fight that battle. And, and that takes time, money, energy, risk. Uh, it's highly political. And uh, even though your, your, your proposal meets some of these new higher, you know, directives and, and uh, you know, and, and, oh, we want more infill growth, more land use intensification, redeveloping our main streets, et cetera, et cetera. When you're in a room with 50 people that, don't want this change you're proposing because of traffic, parking, height, density, um, land values, land values, crime, you know, uh, you know, it, it's funny how the narrative changes, uh, especially when your decision makers, you know, your elected officials are confronted by the public and that realize, Oh, well, okay. Well, we really endorse this, but, uh, you know, how are you maybe, maybe not, Maybe this site isn't what we really thought. And so it, it really comes down to it's the ground floor planning that the zoning bylaw is going to speak to and help create that avenue that I hope starts to reduce some of the impacts on what, because we're in for a big change. And a lot of people in these existing communities, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, I don't think really understand what, what's about to kind of happen here. And uh, are it really... Policy documents and bylaws can say one thing, but really the decision lays on our counselors to say, well, not this time, not this area, not that type of proposal. And that's what's scary here, because even though you have city plan, you could have district plan or even new zoning. Um, if you're in a, a public arena, may it be because you're rezoning a site or you're amending a plan or whatever it is. You know, those politicians need to make that decision. And so I think the new zoning bylaw is really going to simplify it. I think it has to simplify it in two bases. Uh, obviously, from a, a developer's and, and an applicant standpoint, in terms of how you're able to develop a certain type of product that is in alignment with where the city wants to go and develop. But it also has to be easy for the public to kind of understand, too. So when they're reviewing something, 
that they're not having to go through a labyrinth of chapters in zoning, but even ourselves, myself, as a, I've been planning, I've been practicing this for almost 20 years now. And sometimes I'm going through a zone of like, all right, revert back to, you know, overlay here. And then, okay. Oh, but not if you do this, it's like, it's a, it's, it's, it's a tough exercise. Sometimes I think, okay, I've been doing this long enough. And if I have to kind of almost write this sort of algorithm on the board to figure out if I can do the, if this setback applies or not, that's a problem. When, when the professionals have a tough time deciphering a zoning bylaw to understand what a set, certain setback or height is, you I will guarantee you anybody in the general public will just be, I don't even know where to go. I like, what does this even mean? And so I do hope that they simplify it in that in terms of its overall interpretation to to everybody. Now, you can't dummy it down to, to you can't you can only simplify it so much. I do hope that the new zoning bylaw two does have a little bit more attention to how we guide form and aesthetics because to me your good city building isn't about just metrics of well it's 16 meters there's 50 dwellings and 2,000 square feet of main floor commercial those are technical specs how that technical spec turns out in the real world because that's where most people judge a certain type of use how it looks they could they're not necessarily too concerned whether there's 50 dwellings five dwellings 500 dwellings it's the aesthetics and a bad project that's 30 units could have an impact on someone's perception on whether or not that's an appropriate type use on something that does look much better and that is more aesthetically pleasing look at all those row houses that they built in clairview and millwoods and terrible that's their vision of a row house because I grew up next to one and it was terrible. No one liked them there. And, and so how do you create that? I, I, I do hope that our, our bylaw doesn't become too easy for people to get away with crap because we, have, we, we know Edmonton needs to up its game from an architectural standpoint. We're getting there. And if you simplify it, there's a lot of, unfortunately, there's, there's a number of, of, of builders or developers that, We'll just go where, where where they can you know make the quick easy buck and aesthetics aside so they well if i can dummy it down i'll do it that's not our approach we care about how our buildings look and, and what they do to a community whether or not we own the building you know in a year or, or 10 years or 30 years it's important that it creates again this sense of place permanence buildings yeah they come and go over time but it's not immediate you know build a building and five years later it's replaced i mean this building is going to likely be there for 50, 60, 70 plus years. So what are you doing to ensure that it has a bit of sense of that, whether or not Belgian developed it and own it, that it still continues to be this great place that people identify with and, and want to it to stay the way it is. So it doesn't get replaced, not, you know, disposable architecture. And so I do hope that the zoning bylaw does address a little bit of that. And I made that clear to our, uh, our peers of the city in terms of how they want to do this, simplify it but not at the, I guess, the mercy of ensuring we're still getting good built form and aesthetics. Yeah. How do you do that? I'll let them figure that out. But uh, it's, it's, a t- it's a tough one to, to, to do. I mean, again, or you keep going direct control, which is one of the reasons why we do that, because then we can show counsel. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing. Counselors and most people are visual. Talking about a technical component of a zone, like, okay, what does that mean? What's a what's a four meter setback and what's a 16 meter height? 
I don't even know. You show up a picture. Oh, I kind of get it. And so how are we able to do that moving forward? Because I think one of the big challenges too, and we've seen this in previous public hearings and most recent ones, new city plan says a lot, but then we're, in, we're bringing in these conventional zones. There's no image. How many times have we heard counselors say, it'd be easier if I could just understand what you're building. I know we can't ask for it, but like, what is it going to look like? Because when you allow too much, you're going to get something that most people don't want. And, and if you're, 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 if you're too prescriptive, then people are going down this DC route. And we've heard council too say, why are we bringing all these direct controls? We just updated the zoning bylaw for the RA7 and the RA8, but they're now coming back with something that's a direct control that looks like an RA8, kind of technically speaks like an RA8, but it's not an RA8. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. We're, you're talking about a fundamental shift in the way we regulate because right now everything is everything is use-based. Yeah. You're building an apartment building. Here's the way it's going to look or here's yeah. the way your setbacks are going to be in that type of thing. You're going to be a daycare. Here are, the, here are the, uh, the regulations for that. So what I hear from you is that you want to go form-based code and uh, say that architecture and form makes more sense to regulate than, uh, than the uses. Is that right? I think it's a very important part of, of building good cities and places uh, and, and not necessarily full on form based code. Cause that, that takes a whole uh, real big shift, but I do think that they could start and should start introducing some hybrid components of that. Uh, and maybe one day it becomes that, I don't know, because I, I could care less whether there's uh, a liquor store and a cannabis store, or a convenience store and uh, you know, whatever, you know, but I, if it, if it's, if it's a great looking building, and if it contributes to play, because stores come and go, right? We all know that. Tenants come and go, but the building stays the same. So what's more important? Is it, well, we want to really super regulate use? Or do we want to more or less regulate the form and let, you know, the uses speak for itself over a period of time, whether that's a daycare and the daycare becomes a, a medical office or whatever that is. And so I think we really need to put a big emphasis on, on form and how we build these buildings, because that to me is what creates the character of, of most communities. Sure, the uses themselves are, are how people interact with the building in that particular use, but there's really kind of two ways most people interact with the building. It's how they look at it from the street corner and then how they interact with it by going to the coffee shop or restaurant or medical clinic or whatever's inside that building. Yeah, so we have a good example down the down 50th Street, City of Beaumont has a new semi-form-based code zoning bylaw. It seems to be working quite well for them. Um, so we have an example that we can use locally to, to kind of build off of. And I know when the city first submitted their uh, their vision for the new zoning bylaw, they kind of said the same things as what you said is um, a little bit of a hybrid model between form and use is what they want to go. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah. And, and you know, hats off to Beaumont for doing that. I mean, uh, for a smaller municipality like that, which, you know, yeah, that's a big move. And so I always thought that was an aggressive move. And, and uh, kudos to the council for agreeing to saying, you know what, this is the way we want to go. And maybe uh, other municipalities should follow suit because I guess, you know, it'll be interesting uh, to look back on this because uh, I think they adopted that. Was that maybe two years ago or so? Yeah, two, three years ago. And we'll fact Yeah, yeah. That. So now you'll start to really see the impacts of, of this and uh, whether there's uh, the fruits of their labor and the risk and the, uh, what was promised is ultimately delivered. And, and it seems like it's heading that, that way. So, so good on them. So talking about zoning, city plan, council and leadership, um, this podcast is heard by people not just in Edmonton, but elsewhere as well. But Edmonton is going through a municipal election 
just quite substantial. We're, we're having a huge overturn in council. What do you think we can do uh, outside of council and administration to help council make decisions in line with city plan? Because that plan was something that Edmontonians created. It was citywide engagement. They did it over a long period of time. They consulted with the school board and with groups interested in the River Valley and the development industry and youth council. But how do we keep that going? How do we keep that energy going? I think you have to continue uh, talking about our successes uh, that we've achieved in, over the last few years uh, without some of the big direction that we or the new, I guess, guidance with the city plan. I mean, the city plan, the ink is kind of still drying on it. Let's be honest here. And so this next council, a big part of their job is going to be how that document's implemented. And, you know, we get into this, I, I think, you know, the fact that we're going to have almost, a, a, you know, a 50% new faces on council, uh, there's a lot of carryover from the previous council that they're going to have to obviously educate themselves and understand why those decisions were made. And, and I do hope many of the incumbents that are, are running in their respective wards find themselves back into their, their council seat because I think a lot of those new faces will be looking for that guidance from the previous councillors and, and why decisions were made. You know, what we need to do as an industry is to continue to tell our story of, of the successes. Uh, I think also tell our, 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 our how we've improved and, and we've heard these were the issues we had. Here's what we've done to help mitigate that. Here's how we worked with administration to help mitigate that. Here's how we, you know, worked with community leagues and the EFCL and whoever it is to help address this. And I think that will, will provide a bit more of a confirmation how much work has gone on. I mean, right. You, you guys have done an, an extraordinary amount of work to, I think, help improve infill and how it's done in the city, both from approval standpoint and as a good city builder and steward of a, you know, of citizen of Edmonton. I mean, it's kind of both ways. It's not a matter of, well, just let infill run amok. Um, you know, we want good infill. That's what we advocate for. There's there's some poor builders out there that don't make it easy on us. And and yeah, I mean, here's what we've done collectively as an organization and as an industry. And you're going to have, just like anything else in life, you're going to have some poor builders or contractors or developers that aren't representative of where the real industry is. So don't let that one example, you know, the cherry picked example be sort of the, uh, you know, the, the reference and, and the, the story that's told about how Enfield is done. Um, I just think we'd have to continue telling us the story that we've been telling and showing the successes and showing how we've worked collectively as an industry with administration and the community to develop a better city. And I think that's really what we need to keep doing. Yeah, there's two things I want to say off of that. Uh, first thing is, I, I will toot uh, Ideas Horn. I love working for Idea because the Enfield community is really willing to pivot. They're they're willing to learn, push, raise the bar on our industry, uh, supporting the infill compliance team, the, the infill team at the City of Edmonton that helps the community understand where their voice can be heard. I think the design game in Edmonton has been going up every year. Uh, there's some beautiful projects going, going on around the city. And also, I think we're, we're willing to point out, like, not all the problems are solved. Like we're, we're, we're still working on it. The other thing is on episode two of In Development, we had uh, Jason Savixe from the city of Edmonton that helped create the GBA Plus and Equity Toolkit, which I think will really help Edmonton and Edmontonians look at policy and procedures through an equity lens 
I know I've been at city council a lot over the last four years. Uh, I'm a frequent flyer and, and there's other frequent flyers there that know how to make noise. You know what? Our voices should be one of many. And sometimes if you're there, you're, you're, you're just the only voice. Um, so I'm hoping Jason's new toolkit helps to eradicate that and, and show a wider perspective. Well, I, I will, you know, tip my hat to the city and their whole uh, infill communication. And I mean, I think they've done a real bang up job compared to other municipalities on how they illustrate and I think how they communicate infill development to the general public. It goes back to my earlier comment on zoning bylaw. If you make it too technical and that you need a degree or, or, or an architecture degree or planning degree to understand what they're saying, you've missed it because the vast majority of people, at least if they have a uh, a general understanding of what we're trying to do with some of the changes we're making to maybe a zoning bylaw or whatever. I think the city has done a very, very good job of that. And I think we've got some really great planners in the city too, that are, you know, willing to, to change the course of how they've ultimately facilitated infill development in the city. You know, Jason Sfixay, I mean, there's a whole long list of, of people that have taken, um, have realized, yes, over the years, layers have been added. Let's purge this. We know we're changing. I mean, the cities are changing globally and, and we need to we need to adapt or we're going to find ourselves behind the eight ball. And uh, and so, yeah, it, it takes work of obviously not just the, the private sector and the industry and the builders, but you got to have the other side with you. You have to have administration, those who ultimately are making recommendations to council to be on on board, because if you're worlds apart, um, you need to build the bridge before you can cross that gap. And so uh, the fact that I think we do have administration on board, and again, like you said, we haven't solved all problems, problems and, and issues come up as things get implemented and practiced. That's just the way it is. I mean, it's an ever evolving thing. I mean, I think infill in itself is ever evolving. I mean, we've talked, I think you talk about infill from just simply upgrade, you know, demolishing it and building a duplex or a brand new home to co-housing to, you know, garage suite. I mean, it's evolving very quickly, much like the multifamily housing typology is evolving. Everyone just like, oh, well, it's all rental or just condos. Well, not particularly. <laughs> the, I mean, the market has it has become extremely diverse. Uh, it's become diverse in all, all facets from even the commercial type of buildings that we develop, uh, the office spaces we build. It's evolving. And uh, and that's uh, something we also have to, I think, adapt to and, and uh, be responsive to is that evolution. It's not, okay, our work is done here, guys. Let's take the next five years off and we'll come back at it. I mean, you know, it, 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 it just seems to kind of grow as it becomes more complex. Yeah, to toot Edmonton's horn, uh, I did have students from Ryerson uh, University reach out to me earlier this spring to ask, how did Edmonton bring everyone together to uh, get rid of parking minimums and to make all the changes that we have to allow for missing middle development? And I was like, yeah, our, our city, you know, we work hard every day to make new changes happen, but we do it together. And if a city that's typically known to love its cars, yeah, isn't it? It's it's a remarkable thing. Like you'd figure it would have been places like Toronto, Vancouver, long ago, like, oh, I don't part, like, we won't even argue. You, I read you some of the debate. It's like, it's absolutely insane. And I think, how could this still be a topic of discussion? In a city in Toronto, where we're talking about a site that's sitting on top of two subway lines, and you're talking about park, like what is going on? And yet in Edmonton, you can talk about it, but it's pretty clear. It's like we made that decision. It's sort of 
you, you guys figure out what you need to do. I, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, hats off to City of Edmonton. That was a big move. Quite possibly one of the biggest moves they could make because I was tired of doing parking studies to validate what we always assumed would be. I mean, look at St. Clair now. I'll go back to that because that was the one. That's our development in Forest Heights. It was 29 apartment units over top of 3,500 square feet of retail. We had 27 parking stalls in total. And obviously people freaked out. People freaked out when we were proposing the direct control. Like, well, ooh, you're not doing one for one. And even the counselor was, ooh, oh, it's all way. And the streets heavily parked. And uh, and then, of course, obviously when the uses came in with, uh, you know, one of the, the restaurant uses, big variance in parking, blew up, went to the appeal. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we were successful in, in, uh, in uh, you know, winning the appeal. And uh, But why? Now you go out there and you think, how like this building has been operational for five years now. It's done remarkably well. You go look at the parking lot and, and, and that bill, I'll tell you, we never worry about a vacancy in that building. And it's not parking that drive. Oh, there's no parking. So I, I, a lot of people know what they're getting into when they're, when they're going, like, if you're going to go look for, you know, you are, if you want to live in on the 35th floor and 104th street downtown, you're not looking to where you can park your quad cab dually in a parkade. Because typically you don't have it. And if you do, you kind of probably had a place and it's like, you better figure it out then find a parking that can accommodate your quad cab dually because it's just not going to work here, right? Uh, it's almost kind of like I'm going to have a, uh, you know, a Honda Fit and I'm living, you know, a back road country in uh, in Grand Cash. And yeah, during it's probably not going to be quite a great vehicle for you considering you're going through roads that aren't plowed or graded, maybe wet and mushy during rain. You gotta. It, people make decisions where ultimately, at the end, they fit their own needs, desires, and and likes. So, well, and in Forest Heights, that's a staple in the community. Like people love it now. They go there all the time. Totally. And it, it was an option that wasn't available before. And I think that's what infill provides. What people sometimes don't understand is you had an option, but it was the bar next door, which was an interesting place. <laughs> place making. That still has a place and people will identify that place of the community for better or for worse. But again, it still has a, uh, you know, we knew that that neighborhood deserved and could do better. And, and so far it has. So, you know, we'll, uh, again, more the merrier like that. Yeah. I frequented that bar in high school. Um, <laughs> and now I'm glad that there's options. <laughs> yeah. To paraphrase a very famous Edmonton wall, taking risks is the most Edmonton thing you can do. So, yeah. Um, I want to finish off here, Chris. Uh, you mentioned that you're fairly active on Twitter, LinkedIn, social media. Um, I noticed a lot over uh, over COVID, you were fairly vocal about anything that posted saying that uh, office work, working from the office is dead. Um, you advocated that it's actually not. And I heard a rumor that Belgen's actually been in the office almost the entire time during, uh, during COVID. Can you, um, maybe talk a little bit about your position on that? It's funny how quick people are to make predictions in the midst of a, of an event that's, you know, causing a, a disruption. 9-11, airline industry is dead and the vacation industry is dead. It'll change forever. You're never going to do it. No one's, no one's going to want to take planes. Right. Uh, not with the level of security you're asking me to do. Oh, my gosh. Taking off shoes and x-rays, whatever it is. What happened? <laughs> well, we just go look what happened, you know, several months into that uh, or post 9-11. And then never mind, you know, several years post 9-11 came roaring back. 
uh, people seem to not have any problem stepping on an aircraft five years after 9-11. Much like here with the whole, oh, everyone's working from home. Oh, with technology now, it allows people to do that. And it's like, right, okay, that's one part of that equation. I think, you know, offices are much more than just places to, you know, execute daily tasks uh, to operate a specific type of business. Uh, it, they're places where no different than what we are trying to create with our city building, our places and experiences. They are also experiences of our professional work. We've developed friendships with people we work with. And I, and I think you know, we saw the trend of how office spaces were becoming more of experiential spaces. Was it just simply a bunch of walls, cubicles and boardrooms, but we had to try to make these places fun to be in and people wanting to stay and be there and experience. And there were companies putting in millions of dollars in retrofitting and renovating their spaces to encourage people to stay and experience, collaborate. And and I don't think that's going to change now that we've all become decentralized because of, of, of this awful pandemic. Uh, and I do think that it's a trend that will kind of find itself coming back. Now, I do believe um, we will see some hybrids to it, but it'll be interesting to see how those hold over time. Time is, will tell you exactly what, will, I mean, no one can predict the future. Um, but I do believe we are as human beings, we like being around people. We like experiences. And I don't think that's going to change irrespective of whether we're in a pandemic or in a major world war or whatever. I mean, just look at World War II. And I'll use that as an example of where it caused such mass destruction and devastation in, in, in mainly urban centers throughout most of Europe. When you want to think a five-year war, what that would have and should have done is, well, people don't want to live in cities. The majority of the casualties took place in cities. We should all become decentralized, small villages, little places. And to a degree, we kind of saw that, I think, with suburbanization. But I don't think that was the result of, well, decentralized because of risks of war and casualties. It was a matter of just how we house people. And um, we saw cities come back in the most worst of times. We've actually seen cities always come back for thousands of years. War, famine, disease. We've gone through this before and we will continue to kind of, I think, flock to cities. Cities aren't dead. People won't just be leaving to the hinterland to work. And, and Because I, I think some of those who are very abrupt to make those decisions will find themselves over time saying, wow, I, maybe, <laughs> maybe I kind of put the cart before the horse here and maybe I shouldn't have sold the house and moved out to the lake because the lake's nice and all, but being at the lake every day, every week, every month isn't really jiving with me anymore. And, and I think that's going to be the same thing with the offices where people say, hey, yeah, great, I don't have to go to work, no commute, no parking pay, no, no transit. And I think we're seeing now some people are realized, you know, you talk to a lot of people, especially, uh, you know, those working from the municipality side, six months into the mm -hmm. pandemic, they're like, oh yeah, I, I, I kind of like it. You know, it's good. You know, I can still be, but you ask a lot of them now and they realize, you know, I kind of want to be back. And maybe it's a hybrid of it. Uh, where you can have more flexibility, which I think is a good thing because I think there's a number of reasons we want to talk about work-life balance and we're always trying to do that. Uh, allowing people to work more remotely, I think is only going to, I think, encourage the development of more third spaces and places. May it be a coffee shop. Uh, in fact, what this could do uh, is create more of these 15-minute districts that we were talking about. Because if you had, really, if you were really emphasizing, well, core downtown, population, 
a couple of these suburban nodes and then suburban, you know, low density and, 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 and housing and a couple of these corridors. I think these 15 minute districts with having people working a hybrid, especially in our larger municipalities where you've got five, six, seven million people that commuting and getting from point A to point B becomes a lot more cumbersome. If you're working for, let's say, a major financial institute or big employer that has a, a huge presence downtown, but you live an hour and a half away and you're allowed to do remote work, but you're not going to work from home because I, I just can't do it. It's just not the right space. So you're going to see, I think, a little bit more of the growth of these kind of uh, remote kind of work areas and where people may be, maybe be in the form of co-working spaces or something like that. These third spaces are, I think, are going to become more popular as we have some of this hybrid work environment. And now, again, how long this hybrid work environment lasts, I don't know. I, I do believe personally that over time, you're going to have this two-tiered employee profile. Those who have made an effort to come and be present within the office or within working and collaborating face-to-face -face with their peers and then those that are on the outside circle that have worked remotely, they've done their tasks. But, you know, over time, it'll be interesting uh, where the real bonds between all those peers happen and where those were just arm's length, right? Well, I'm in the Zoom, like right now, I'm in the call, but Ryan and Mariah were talking about, you know, Friday, you know, after work drinks or beer or the coffee or the little luncheon learn they went to. And I wasn't part of that, but you bond like that, that, that little event, a lunch and learn where you're in the same room learning about, so I could be dialed in somewhere, but maybe, uh, where you could be, you know, you're more engaged. I think you're more engaged when you're in the same space. We've all been guilty of that. I mean, you go to a zoom call where there's 30 people. First off, you kind of shut your thing off. So no one can really see what I'm doing. Right. So I'm going to do that. <laughs> you hear me? Uh, but no one really knows what I'm, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's different. We are. Uh, people that I think like to be around other people. We want to have these experiences and that isn't going to go away. May it be experiences of where we live, where we work and where we socialize and, and spend our, our, our after hours. May it be recreation. I mean, all that stuff. So I, I, I'm a firm believer that office is not dead. It certainly has, has changed. I will say what I've liked about adopting this technology that's been around for a long time is the fact that it allows me almost to be a little bit more productive when I'm in transit. So I could be dropping my kids off at daycare. I, I get to the daycare at nine and there's a meeting at nine. Well, in the past, it would be like, I got a hustle to get to the meeting at nine o'clock, wherever it is downtown, I'll be late. Okay. But now there's no like, well, just we'll, we'll dial you in. And when you get there, you get there, whether it's 930 or, or so you could still be participating while you're in transit. I think that's been something that we've I, I, most companies have now adopted and, and it's accepted. Whereas dialing in before wasn't really, oh, your conference calling. Eh, now it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, conference call in. That's OK. Yeah, we'll send you a link. We're in the boardroom. So I do like that aspect of it. It does allow less that you feel that you need to be face to face and this and that. Um, but I do believe um, the majority of people's time, especially in our industry, you gel, you bond being around each other. And you have those serendipitous exchanges when you're in the same physical space as other people. It's no different than if you're going to a restaurant, you bump into somebody, you have a chat. You can't do that when you're all taking things out unless you just happen to be there at the same time when they're picking something up. 
usually someone was sitting down there for the last hour. You just happen to walk in. Oh, Jim. Hey, man, how's it going? I haven't seen you for a while. You know what? You just reminded me I need to call you on Monday. Whereas you didn't see Jim and he's virtual. You're less inclined to remember I need to phone Jim about something. Anyways, it's all those little exchanges added up over time, which I think become a lot more meaningful to people. And I think people are now are starting to realize I kind of miss that. I miss talking about the Oilers and little lunch hour conversations that might be nothing more than a one minute chat or, or a 10 minute or, or the whole hour. You miss that because you could do it on Zoom like this. I can tell you right now, I'd much rather be in a podcast studio with you fine looking folks chatting and, you know, pointing at you. you know, it's different than this, uh, even though this works, right? We can execute it. We're recording. But I don't know. There's something about being in that same space. Like what? It's like people, I'm fine with watching a sporting event on TV. Cool works. But I tell you, being in, in, the, in the physical space of a sporting event is a lot, is, is, a, is, is a two different experiences. And, uh, you know, the energy, the roar, the the conversation, it's just like being in a restaurant. Anyways, there, there, that's my take. No, that's good. I like your 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 two uh, your two pronged or your two tiered approach there. I, I know from personal experience, uh, the last company that I worked with, I I feel like I rose through the ranks just as a nature of having my office right next to the bosses. So I, I was fishing for a compliment. Neither of you were going to say I'm good at my job. <laughs> my goodness. Okay, get to the call of action, Mariah. I, well, I was going to say that's why women fought so long to be in the office because that's how you do well in business is you're around people. You talk about Ted Lasso, then you get into the project, make a joke about how crazy that last episode was and what Nate did. And if you are not watching it, the two of you, then you have weekend pods now. Um, but uh, Chris, what we do at the end of every episode is we ask our, our guests to give a call to action to everyone who's listening in. So um, pick your poison. Do you want to talk about commercial and fill? Or you could talk about a workplace, uh, workplaces or, or the zoning bylaw or anything, but. Boy, I guess, uh, I guess first and foremost, I'll say this, you know, uh, exercise your democratic right and vote, get out there, especially municipal level. Uh, this is one of the most, this is where, uh, these decision makers have the most impact on your day-to-day life. And yet it has typically the lowest voting turnout, uh, compared to provincial and federal and, uh, which has always astounded me. So, Please uh, go out, vote uh, at the municipal level. This is extremely important. Um, it's a big election this year. I know we don't want to talk about politics. No one took sides. It's just a general statement. Uh, I think it's very important for you to get out and exercise your democratic right. Uh, call to action. Let's just let's keep doing what we're doing, uh, Edmontonians, city builders, creators, entrepreneurs. Uh, I think those people know this city has a bright future and. There's always noise in the background. May it be, oh, the provincial government. Oh, this. And you know what? I actually going to, I always, there's a lot of people sometimes you hear, I'm leaving this province because of this. To me, I say, that's quitting. And the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And I think what you need to do is to find ways to become more engaged and active to, to ensure that, you know what? I want to make this city or province a better place. What does that encounter? What does that, what does that require you to do? Because Moving to BC or to wherever else, believe me, the grass isn't greener there. Uh, and there's always issues. And there's always going to be sometimes dark, noisy times. Uh, and then there's going to be really good times. Uh, but you have to look at it in terms of longevity. 
you know, and that you only have so much years on this wonderful planet uh, to make an influence and change. Use it wisely because 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 years goes by. We're on this planet for a long time. So, you know, do whatever you can to have a, a positive imprint and uh, a positive impact on the next generation and, uh, and be open to continuing to learn, right? Don't close your mind off. I think, I hope I'm able to learn until my mind doesn't allow me to and my, my body doesn't allow me to. And that's why I think, you know, it's nice that we surround ourselves with such young people in this office is that, you know, they're the ones that are the 20 something year olds now that are there. What we're doing is going to impact them in the next 20 and their next generation below that. And so I think you need to continually try to evolve yourself. What has been isn't necessarily where things are going to be or should be going. And so keep evolving and the world is changing fast. So we have to keep up. People are mobile nowadays. Uh, so how do we make this city a great place where people want to be and want to stay and want to invest their, their time and, and raise a family and, and run a business and, and uh, invest? Well, that's a lovely place to end it. I do think Edmonton is a great place to grow and has so many different opportunities. I know there's like six degrees of separation between everyone, but I think in Edmonton, it's more like three. Which oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's a nice thing. And it kind of keeps people a bit more uh, rooted. Yeah. And, uh, you know, having those connections, I think, is a positive thing at the end of the day versus feeling like you're just kind of you're isolated. You're just floating out there amongst a sea of millions of people. But I think Edmonton, you know, we're a city of, uh, you know, almost one and a half million people in the region. Um, but we feel like we're, you know, 50,000, uh, you know, where a lot of people know each other. And, and I think that there, there's a benefit to that. So that was a fantastic episode. What a conversation. What a conversation. I think we just need to say that every single time. Just what a conversation. Yeah, it's almost like the people who are associated with IDEA are great. Like Edmonton is doing really cool things and we get lucky enough to get to talk to them. Yeah, we definitely know how to pick our guests. This is the third guest, second guest. Everybody just seems to mention Jason Civixay. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it because otherwise you're going to wonder why every single episode from here on out mentions him. <laughs> yeah, and it's great because it's not even prompted. It's just everyone loves him. And that was a huge get for us. We were super lucky to have him on. I think the work that he did around the toolkit is amazing. Other cities are are seeing it, realizing it, wanting to recreate it. And yeah, we got to have him on, which is great. Mm-hmm. But uh, going into that, Chris talked about at the end some cool call to action things. So we talked about the voting at the beginning of the episode. Uh, voting super important, but the election has happened. So in four years, make sure you vote again. Well, depends on what the federal election does. Any opportunity, any opportunity you have, just go do it. I think uh, you and I are quite aligned that if you don't vote, you don't get to complain. So yeah, we were just joking before you hit the record button here. Like if there's like you have to monitor the people that said they didn't vote, like monitor them very closely. If they didn't go vote, anytime they complain, you get to call them out for it. That's just that's just a society rule. Yeah. And it's crazy because I have friends who aren't permanent residents who would like, I don't know, not give their left arm, but almost give their left arm to be able to vote. And then it's not that difficult to do 15 minutes of like, look into the different candidates. So no complaining if you don't vote. Can't permanent residents vote municipally though? I don't think so. Really? Yeah. The city's not for them? No, they get to pay taxes. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. that's good. 
they get to decide where those taxes go to, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. No representation. Super awesome. Um, yeah, I don't know if I don't think that's a council thing that they can fix. Maybe we'll have to go to go talk to the feds. Let's anyways. This is an idea for some future guests for sure. Uh, the other things that Chris talked about were let's keep doing what we're doing. I think Edmonton is a great place to be. We are dynamic enough to change as a city and we've got great things happening all the time. So yes, hats off to him on that. And then the always be learning. I loved that he uh, ended on that because how we grow and how we continue being the great city that we are is to always be learning. And if you don't know and you want to know more about info, I'm going to plug the education course again. (laughs) So IDEA puts on uh, infill certification course in partnership with the city of Edmonton. It goes through all the basics and fundamentals of infill five days. Uh, design, permits, codes, construction, community relationships, and communication. And the best thing is, if you sign up, it's happening at the end of November. You get to spend five days with Ryan and I for like 25 hours and ask us any question that you want. Because Ryan is the lead teacher for that program. Yeah, I don't think that's the carrot, but there's other carrots. Uh, we, we need to be fair. There is a carrot for builders that take it. They get um, uh, put into an expedited permit review timeline for specific types of projects. So there is that carrot, but it's what we found over the last, what, four times that we've done it. It's not just builders that take it. We've had lots of development adjacent industries. So lots of realtors. We've had some community members, designers. There's something kind of for everybody in there. And uh, I mean, the goal when we set out to create the course with the city was to, you know, raise the floor of where infill is for everyone. So, and just kind of educate as many people as possible about what infill is and what good infill is. So yeah, more than just spending 25 hours with Mariah and I. Yeah, well, and we do have other fantastic teachers from the industry and from the city. So you get to meet a lot of people and over 50 companies have taken the program so far. So you get to join some pretty cool movers and shakers. Yeah. And once we're out of this pandemic, we're definitely throwing a big graduation party. So it's a grad party only. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a really good point, too. Um, Chris's office in his in the episode here was quite loud. There was a few people in there and we talked about how Chris, um, that kind of goes with what he was saying about that people want to be back in the office and chat around the water cooler about the last episode of Ted Lasso. So yeah, I don't know really what to say about that, except that again, today I looked on LinkedIn in my usual morning browse and I saw that he commented on another post about work from home about how, you know, work from home is is not dead, but some hi- some sort of a hybrid model is uh, is probably going to be our future. But um, I don't know about you, Mariah, but I know some people that have been working from the office the entire time just because it gives them, you know, some comfort in having that same routine when everything else in the world is kind of going crazy. But it also is still a very social space, and that's kind of necessary for, for some people. Yeah, well, I've been incredibly lucky uh, while working with IDEA Over the past almost five years, it's been a pretty flexible environment. So even before the pandemic, I was working half from the office, half from home. Sometimes you'd find me in a coffee shop working there. Um, And that gave me the flexibility to like throw a load of laundry in while I was writing replies to the city of Edmonton or uh, making a call to a member or whatever, which was fantastic. So I think the flexible works environment is going to be great. I do think that it's really important to be in the office for part of the time. 
if not a like a bit more of a majority of the time, those relationships and those like meet cute kind of conversations of how to deal with problems is really important. And working on cool projects, sometimes that happens when you're there and you're kind of like, things need to happen really fast and they need someone that they can just go and talk to. But it also goes back to that equity conversation where not all the time can you be there. You might be helping your aging parent or taking care of a kid. Um, So yeah, I think hopefully out of this pandemic, we'll be able to be flexible, but I can attest from pre-pandemic flexibility is great, but so is in person. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. It's. I think we're going to look back and kind of be amazed at how long it took us to get to this hybrid model because, I mean, I worked nine to five for a long time for basically my entire career until I, you know, took up office in my uh, my basement here and I'm able to put laundry in whenever I like. But um, the nine to five, the, the most frustrating thing about working in the office uh, and being mandated to be there during those hours was my doctor, physiotherapist, bank, anything that I needed to do sometimes, and sometimes is time sensitive, they all run the same hours. So I got to take off work to do it or go on my lunch hour and be rushed and scarf down a McChicken on my way back or something. So it's, you know, it's, I think the hybrid model is long overdue, long overdue. The interesting thing about uh, Chris's comment there on the LinkedIn post is not a lot of people agree with him. Not a lot of people agree with them in the comments section anyway, so take that for what it's worth. But um, I think there's a lot of people that thrived or prefer the full-time work from home as well. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to work back as we as we go back into a different time, like a different work environment. There's introverts, extroverts. You and I are more extroverted than introverted. Um, so that that works for us. Um, but we need to like be mindful of like, how do we make everyone successful? And I think... There was a lot of great bosses before that would give projects to different people depending on their strengths. And I think we can do that with work from home and being flexible. Like, I don't think introverts will be at home all the time and I don't think extroverts will be in the office all the time. Uh, So it's a balance. And honestly, I miss my introverted friends. So we'll find a way to, to get back there someday. They probably don't miss you. That's the thing. Uh, that's the new thing, Ryan. <laughs> I've been getting phone calls being like, I miss IDFS. Oh. Uh, which was our monthly meeting of like, let's get things done from a volunteer standpoint, have pizza and chocolate beforehand and go to the pub after. But yeah, I was actually surprised when I got a couple calls from some of my more introverted friends saying that they missed it. Because I was like, for sure, they are so much happier doing this online. And then... I was like, yeah, I miss it too. (laughs) Let's let's figure out a way to get back there soon. There's two people that are very close to me that uh, are mega introverts. And as soon as the pandemic started, I don't think they even noticed. Their lifestyle didn't even change. And um, yeah, I think they could still go in this same way for another couple of years. So it is what it is. But that's why the hybrid model makes sense. Um, For fact check, I think we only need to fact check one thing. We talked about Beaumont having a form-based code zoning bylaw. Beaumont did that in 2019. That's actually pretty interesting. I I was curious to see how it was going. I don't do a ton of work out in Beaumont. Um, I have a friend that works out there, but we don't talk a lot about that. We have other things to talk about. So, um, but since 2019, and this goes back to what we were talking about last episode, there's been seven amendments already to that zoning bylaw, three of which in 2020 were just mapping as new development came on, but four of them was changing stuff. 
So it is kind of adapting on the fly. But the part that I really like about this is they have a monitoring program in place. So every, every quarter, every three, four months, they um, look at how things are going based on their established goals. And they produce a really graphically well-designed, publicly available document and share that about the specifics about how their goals are being met, whether or not they uh, met them or stopped them or whatever. And not all of it is flattering, which I'm really excited about. Generally, I shouldn't say generally. In some circumstances, I think it would be easy to have a reporting system that just highlights all the good things that you're doing and saying, oh my goodness, like we are meeting these goals and meeting these goals. But a proper monitoring program identifies both the good and the bad. So it is nice to see that they are producing that quarterly and it seems to be informing how they move forward on a few of their amendments, which I'm really keen on as well. That's really exciting. I am guessing because you found that publicly that uh, it's public information. And now I have my weekend reading material because I want to know what that's all about uh, to help inform us as Edmonton to be able to redo our zoning bylaw. So yeah, yeah, not everything's perfect. And that's kind of like what makes the world beautiful. And we have to adapt together. Yeah, well, that sounds like a fun little weekend for you, uh, reading some form based (laughs) code uh, monitoring programs. But uh, yeah, thanks for hanging out with me. I'll see you next week.